On December 18, 1977, the famed illustrator Edward Gorey was interviewed by Dick Cavett. Seeing your drawings, I had a sense of deja vu. I had a feeling that I had seen Henry James illustrated. And the very minute that Dick Cavett mentioned Henry James... I think I've read practically everything he's ever written, and I loathe and detest all of it. Well, the atmosphere became a little tense. <laughs> I have the same mixed feelings about him. I, I, I mean, I just really think he's one of the worst writers who ever lived. Even the witty and urbane Dick Cavett himself was hard-pressed to defend the putative master of American literature. Someone said that... Uh, Following through one of his sentences is like watching an elephant try to pick up a pea. Well, that's true. And My, yet there's something <clears throat> wonderful about the work uh, that brings you back to it. Uh, well, I, I was, I, I mean, the, the last time I had a go-round with James, I think it was, was the, you know, the Golden Bowl, of the Ambassadors, the Ivory Tower, the Wings of the Dove. Did you by any chance do the cover of the paperback of what Maisie knew? <sighs> yes, ha. which was one of my... Supposedly okay. one of my better jackets. I hadn't read the book, actually. I'd read a synopsis of it at the time. In 1974, just three years before he talked with Gorey, Dick Cavett was confronted by novelist Anthony Burgess about his feelings on Henry James. Uh, we all know, and it's repeated in the book, that you are one of the few people alive, perhaps the only person alive, who has read all of Henry James's novels. Well, I, I, no, that's a terrible uh, thing to know about yeah, anybody. In true. fact, I, I, true. Uh, there may be some I missed. I think that may have been exaggerated by a journalist. Well, but you admit it in this book. Edward Gorey and Anthony Burgess are both dead and thus unavailable for comment. But I did try contacting Cavett's people to see if I could get the man himself to comment upon the state of his Henry James problem in 2022. Unfortunately, I did not hear back. We're sorry. You have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer... But I did get in touch with Professor Susan Mizrucki, the author of A Very Short Introduction to Henry James. You see, I also have a Henry James problem. I find reading Henry James, late Henry James in particular, to be about as pleasurable as stabbing myself in the chest 34 times not long after I've shaved my eyebrows off and spent an uninterrupted 24-hour period watching nothing but the Dr. Oz show. Not that this has actually happened to me, but you get the idea. Now, I don't want to feel this way about Henry James, but feel this way I do. It was my hope that Professor Ms. Rucky could help to set me straight. Susan! I need your help. I've read Dorothy Richardson's Pilgrimage, all 13 volumes. I've read Miss McIntosh, my darling. I've read The Recognitions, J.R. I've read Finnegan's Wake, all of these <laughs> long, complicated books. But with Henry James, especially late Henry James, which I, who I know you're a fan of, I have a significant problem. So I'm hoping you uh -huh. can possibly help me. What can I do to appreciate this, for goodness sakes? What I would say to begin with is that, you know, I think James really requires and demands patience. His message to our era is slow down, look carefully. He made so many incredible epigraphic statements over the course of his life. It's hard to isolate any one of them, but I do think his claim, try to be someone on whom nothing is lost. I do think that that can be viewed as a kind of signature epigraphic statement. And you miss things when you rush and when you don't observe closely and carefully. So I do believe that his writing style is itself an effort to move and think and look with more care and deliberation and slowness. I really do. And I think for our era in particular, our sort of multitasking, everyone headlong, rushing. You could argue that the quarantine was a kind of absolute imposition 
of a kind of solitude, peacefulness, stationary condition that people just went crazy. I would also talk about the initiated reader, which was a very important category for James, the initiated reader. William Dean Howells was one of James's contemporaries, and he said that James understood from the outset that he was going to have to create his own audience. He was going to have to shape and make his own audience. And James spoke, especially in his, his writings about fiction, in his prefaces to his various novels that he wrote later in life for his New York collected edition of his works. He spoke often about an initiated reader, and that is a reader who really got him and knew how to read him and knew how to dwell in the atmosphere of his narratives. I, I got you. I'm going to offer some pushback. I recently read, for the first time ever, Lawrence Durrell's Alexandria Quartet, and that was a case uh-huh. where I just loved it. Those books were so richly written that the only way you could really savor the texts and the obscure words is to slow down. But I don't get much of an incentive, particularly in late James, especially when... James himself says, uh, well, you know, my late style is something that could bear without cracking the strongest pressure we show on it. Right. And I, I'm right, literally right, right, right. I'm literally line editing this guy's sentences as I'm reading. I recently reread The Golden Bulb just because I'm a masochist, I guess. Let's use the passage that you quoted at the beginning of your book, which is the description of afternoon tea at the very beginning of The Portrait of a Lady, right? I have no problem with that. That, to me, is like the Captain Crunch description in Neil Stevenson's Cryptonomicon, right? But, like, this late stuff, this page-long stuff where it's like, he looked to the left, he looked to the left again, you know, Verver was there, blah, blah, blah. It's like, come on, dude. It's not so much patience, it's, am I really getting the reward here, you know? (laughs) I, I, you know, I I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. I mean, I I just, I couldn't agree with you less, is all I can say. Ah, fantastic. And let me tell you something, you know, I'm teaching now, you know, a seminar with a philosopher friend of mine, you know, we have 24 BU undergraduates, and they are just inhaling Henry James very happily. They love it. And in fact, we had had to have a waiting list for our course, because so many students wanted to get in, and we had a limited number, we wanted it to be a seminar. They are carefully eating up James, spoonful by spoonful. So all I can say to you is, let me just ask, I mean... The Golden Bowl has some of the greatest characters ever created by a writer. The greatest characters. The Prince, Maggie Verver. You know, how you can be bored by that book. You know, the Assinghams. I, 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 oh, I, I can't stand it. the Assinghams. They're just. No. Okay, but they're I can't amazing. stand them. They're, they're, they're amazing. They're... They're amazing characters. They're amazing characters, and their dialogues are unbelievable. And let me tell you something. How? Are you married? Wait, no, wait, I'm not. Hold on, I'm hold not, on, I'm hold not. on. Okay, okay, good. Okay, so that's, 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 that's exhibit one for evidence from my book. Anyone who's been through a marriage or who, who wants to be married and, and is eager to learn about the institution, if you don't read The Golden Ball first, you're not going to make as good a choice as you would if you did beforehand. I'm not kidding. According to Professor Ms. Ruckey, 
My failure to settle down in my 40s wasn't just an existential development that some of my older friends hectored me about, much in the way that introverts rightfully complain about automated phone calls that badger you about extending your car warranty. It was also a liability in reading Henry James. Maybe you need to come, I don't know how old you are, but maybe you need to come back to this when you're 50 or 60. And then I, you might I'm not be that far. To... I'm not that far from those ages. <laughs> I, I mean, I've read The yeah. Golden Bowl now three times in my life. I hate the Assinghams yeah. with a yeah. great fervor. They are nothing you, more than... But you than... don't see what's great about the characters. You don't see what's great about the prince. Or Maggie. It's just Maggie yeah. and Charlotte. Look, it's yeah. it really is just very boring to me. Whereas the House of Mirth or Edith Wharton, I'm yeah. in heaven. I'm in heaven. I, I have, again... Maybe, I, it, maybe it's because it's shorter. What can I tell you? I mean, look, I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking here. I mean, <laughs> oh, I, I read, I, I've read Finnegan's Wake. I've yeah. read long, plenty long yeah. books. I love... Yeah. I will stump for Finnegan's Wake like you wouldn't believe. And yeah. certainly more than okay. the Ambassadors yeah. of the Golden Bull. Okay, you are clearly... A late James Dirt in particular. I saw your millions. No, essay. no, but I'm ready. Look, if, if, you, if, you let, if you if you want if you want to give me a second, just sure, to yeah. make some ca- offer some caveats. Yeah, 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 yeah. Go, caveats. For go, okay. for go for it. Go for it. Go for it. Go for it. Let me tell you. First of all, first of all, I was married. Um, my my husband died unfortunately in 2014. I'm but, sorry. Um, incredibly a fabulous human being. We were married for 29 years. My soulmate. Okay, he was an English professor at Harvard for a good chunk of his career hated Henry James, okay? Could not stand to read him by and large. I mean, he, I did get him to really love The Portrait of a Lady, so it's interesting what you said to me before. I, I, I like but Portrait of a Lady. Yeah, love it. Okay, I know. Yeah, and he kind of liked it too. But here's what I want to tell you, okay? Just so you feel a little better and so you don't think I'm, yeah. I'm a high-culture, obnoxious snob. The fact is, a lot of great literature people, English professors, can't stand Henry James. They yep. find him obnoxious. They find his tone pompous, self-satisfied, unctuous, arrogant. You know, I mean, I, ha- I talk about all this in my book. I yeah. talk about the distaste for James, which is a real thing. And look, one thing I would say, there's only so many hours in the day, okay? You should not be reading stuff you don't love. Why waste your time? There's so much great, wonderful stuff that you, you will love to read. You, if you start reading Henry James and you can't stand him, run in the other direction. I would never impose him on people who didn't find him powerfully just seductive. And in my case, I guess I was raised by people who were like very psychologically minded. I always had a real sort of obsession with minds, you know. And I think when I read James for the first time, very, very young, I was, I was probably like around you know, 10 years or old something? or something. Way oh, too 10, okay. I was an obnoxious little literary brat, you know. But the point is that I just felt like, I didn't understand it, God knows, but I felt like I had entered a world that made unbelievable sense to me. I couldn't believe that there was someone who wrote like this about human beings, and I was just floored. But, you know, I was a James aficionado from the beginning, but I know tons of brilliant, brilliant people, literary people, who think yeah. James is for the birds. Okay, so do not ever, do not ever feel bad. And, and, you know, my disagreement with you, I'm just having a good time. You should not feel that I'm looking down on you for disliking James, because trust me, tons of people who who I, (laughs) no, tons of people who I admire endlessly can't stand the guy and can't stand the writing and feel the same way you do about Golden Bull. I mean, what is the point? Who needs it? I can't stand this. 
You know, and, and here you are saying are, this is yeah. this is one of the most yeah. the, the greatest masterpieces, and and I should yeah. read it if I ever decide to marry. And uh, see, uh, I believe yeah. in taste. I believe in taste. Yeah. I believe in in appetites. I believe that people, everyone is is absolutely justified in oh, in everyone? you know reading what they want. Yeah, oh. everyone. I've certainly had no problem reading whatever the hell I wanted. When it comes to books, I am a hopeless philanderer, which may also explain in part why I'm not married. On the other hand, what I want to read may not necessarily match what is considered to be top-notch literature. And that's a factor to consider if you want to be well-read. Hence my Henry James problem. I was either a hopeless moron or someone who would simply not grasp Henry James in my lifetime. But Professor Mizrucki did offer some helpful contemporary parallels. One of the things I argue about James is that if he were around now, in, in our era, he would not be writing novels. He'd be making TV serials. He would understand that that's where all the imagination and vitality and exciting, innovative cultural thinking in our society is going. It's all in the television. So I think he'd be doing them. I mean, my point is that I think James actually was more interested in innovation than a lot of his sort of more smug and snobby critics who would look down on people for not liking him. I want to bring up a Gore Vidal essay, which I'm sure you're familiar with about <laughs> the Golden Bull. He, he, it's a great essay, and he, and he identifies yeah. Henry James as that of the old pretender, the late period of Henry James. He points yeah. out yeah, that yeah. because the ambassadors, the Wings of the Dove, and the Golden Bull were dictated in a conversational style, a curious yeah. one that is only yeah. Jamesian, right? He deems this conversational style euphemistic where most people are direct and suddenly precise where avoidance or ellipses is usual, that these three novels belong in the oral tradition as much as the written. And when I read this in my quest to understand why I, I hate Henry James, especially late Henry James, I'm a dialogue guy. I show run an audio drama that's won awards, and I'm a very uh -huh. much a, a dialogue guy. So I'm wondering if there is just something, if it really is a dialogue question, going to your comparison that he would be in doing TV serials right now, I am missing that one fatal DNA that allows me to appreciate this guy's style. I mean, believe me, repeat attempts here, Susan. Repeat attempts. Yeah, yeah. No, I believe it. And the fact that you're even talking to me is, is a sign that, you know, you are due diligence. I mean, you're... you're yeah. You 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 have given every chance there is, and all I can say is I, I don't think you, you should feel bad about it. I mean, my recommendation would be abandon ship. Who needs it? Again, you have so much that you love. Obviously, you're a you're someone who has a passionate appreciation for all kinds of writing and all kinds of literary works. And I think James would liberate you. I think James would say, go find your calling. Go find what you love. That's what people should be doing. People should be spending time with stuff they love. Look, we are all products of our childhoods, our education, our friendships, our families. I mean, there's so much that goes into who we are. And all of these things dictate what we are going to appreciate and respond to. And the great news for each of us, I think, is that there's just so much stuff out there. There's so much great stuff. In my case, you know, look. I love films, which I teach. I love TV serials, which I teach. I love yeah. novels. And I love poetry. I I, love I, I've read your endless. Brando book, yeah. So. <laughs> oh, it's really nice of you. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. fun. I appreciate that. But anyway, I love Marlon Brando. And so the point is that, from my point of view, I could never be bored because there's just so much great stuff in all these different forms out there to just enjoy. And that's why I would say that I really would never pressure anyone the only thing I would say is 
just make sure you give it a chance your first time around. Like you obviously have more than given James a chance. You, you, you've earned, you've earned every right to say enough. Let me, yeah. let me tell you the situation yeah. I'm in, Susan. Yeah. It's a very, yeah. very rare <laughs> So I have this project I've been working on since 2011 yeah. where I, I've been, uh-huh. that's why I'm reading like a lot of these, these classic books. I was going to read them uh-huh. probably anyway, but I, I took the 1998 yeah. Modern Library list, and I have written an uh-huh. essay on every single one. I'm up to number 70 wow. right now. But the problem wow. I have is that James has three yeah. slots on those lists, and oh, those no. three are, of course, <laughs> the the ones I hate, Wings of the Dove, the Ambassadors, and the Golden Bull. So I, oh, I can't God. just... Yeah, I, I, love, I love the Wings I of the Dove. You do. I, I know you do. I know you do. I don't want to be See, just well, like... you should do, hire somebody. See, this is where you no, know, my advice, you hire no. somebody to... <laughs> It took me five years to get through Finnegan's Wake, but I did it, goddammit. And I am not going yeah, to be yeah. deterred by mansplaining yeah. James right now. You know, so I'm yeah, hoping yeah. to get okay. some hits. How can I read the greatest good, literature? Well, good for, good the, 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 for the, you. Good well, for you. You okay. got to help me here, I, Susan. I admire that. Okay. <laughs> you got to help me understand. How can I appreciate the worst mansplainer in all of literature? Please. <laughs> well, see, I guess what I would say to you is, you know, for me, it's character. It's character as much as anything. And let me give you a couple thoughts, okay? One thought is, why is it that so much James has been made into films? So much James. And he's one of the biggest, his works have been adapted endlessly. I think it's because his characters are so great and because the filmmakers recognize you want really amazing characters, you go to Henry James. I mean, and you you, you make films of his novels. I guess what I would say to you is one thing you can do is try as much as you possibly can to read for character. You know, I mean, I don't know, Kate Croy, Millie Thiel. I just think the characters in Wings of the Dove are just so unbelievably Lionel Croy. I mean, Kate Croy's father. We meet him. In the I first will couple confess, pages. Wings is a, Wings yeah. is Wings is better than the Ambassadors yeah. and the Golden Bull. I can get yeah, behind yeah, Wings. I will, yeah. But yeah, like even yeah. even the last Golden yeah. Bull adaptation, the Merchant Ivory one, they had to like really yeah. change things yeah. about Charlotte from the text yeah. a little bit to make her more scheming yeah, yeah. and all that. So it's not like Yeah, James, I was about to tell yeah. you I was about to tell you yeah. to watch the movies. That can help. No, too. no, no, yeah, I gotta he, I gotta go straight to the text here. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't help you. It doesn't help but it doesn't help you to sort of have to have it go down a little easier to read to watch like the, the Nick Nolte golden bowl or it doesn't do anything for you I, no huh? no no it's it, it really <laughs> no. look and i get it dark shadows yeah. used the old dark shadows oh, yeah. used turn of the screw oh, I for love that. yeah yeah i love yeah. i love the old dark shadows and they and that used yeah. turn of the screw so it's it's like i get it yeah. henry james and i like short yeah. henry james short early henry yeah. james you i do. love washington square yeah. i tore through yeah. to paradise the uh haunted yanagahara yeah. novel which is very dead into Henry James, and I got it. It's not yeah. like I'm a dubby. It's just that I... No, this you're Ob. The... No, come on. <laughs> what you are... No, look, you're one of the smart, highly literary people who can't stand them. And like I said, yeah. you have so much company, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, every major English department and all of the people who have... People have written incredibly important literary criticism. You have so much company, it's not funny. So don't feel bad. It's not what I would say to you, okay? Yeah. You should yeah. not. What I would say, though, is that I grant you a tremendous amount of credit. I mean, I think it's just unbelievably admirable that you're willing to, you know, plow through this stuff and force yourself to try to come to terms with it, you know, even though you really dislike it. I mean, I, I guess what I would say is there has to be, well, there's something in you that wants to do it and wants to get yourself to do it. But I would also say that 
let's put it this way. You're not going to lose anything. You won't lose. You will only gain something. You will learn something about yourself and about writing and everything else just to get a really strong handle on what is unbearable and intolerable about it. I'm serious. I think, Yeah. yeah. Having been that genteel man who politely says nothing as some Yahoo condemns one of my favorite authors, I was grateful for Professor Mizruki's admirable patience with me. But now I was the Yahoo, the country bumpkin, the smug gopher prairie know-nothing who just can't refrain from expressing literary scorn. And I hated myself for it. Fortunately, a publicist alerted me to a new novel from Denisha Smith called The Prince. It was based on the story of the Golden Bull. And if Professor Miss Rucky couldn't help me, then perhaps Denisha Smith could. So, the two of us chatted during the week that Russia invaded Ukraine, offering a suitable counterpoint to my comparatively pedantic Henry James problem. It's a pleasure to chat with you on the eve of destruction. <laughs> so, uh, oh, anyway, yeah. so there are two reasons why I'm talking to you. First, and most importantly, to unpack your book. And second, uh, I have a problem with Henry James. I have tried, I have read him repeatedly, and he just doesn't stick. And maybe one good way of initiating this conversation is to discuss what the appeal of Henry James is for you and how you approached writing this book with the so-called master, uh, it's debatable, in mind. All right. I'll begin with why I chose to do this and in that discuss with you or tell you my feeling about Henry James. Yeah. Uh, uh, First of all, Henry James, as his career reached a kind of end, his last three books were very, very difficult books. The most difficult was the book, The Golden Bowl, which is his sort of last complete novel. And it is difficult. Now, I read Henry James in a certain way. I read him almost as if it were poetry. I don't see a linear form in this. The novel is told, the last three novels, actually, are told from the point of view of the character's consciousness, mostly. They don't speak very much. First of all, the difficulty, I admit, and there is almost no novel as difficult as The Golden Bull. But what appealed to me about The Golden Bull is that it is about secrets. It's the first novel, James's novel, is about a wealthy family with terrible secrets and fascinates me how they solve these secrets. And from that, I took my own novel, I borrowed the outlines of James's novel for yes. The Prince, and I then transferred that story to the 21st century. And I, by nature, having been a journalist, I write in what could be called ordinary English. So my novel in style is very different. The Prince in style oh, yeah. is completely different. I noticed so, in, the, in the first third of the book, you made this attempt to mimic Henry James's sentences. You had the commas and the clauses and all that, but then you were also mercifully brief. You didn't have page-long sentences. But as the book carried on, I noticed that you increasingly drifted away from this style. And I'm wondering, was this an attempt initially to write a pastiche, or what happened here? Very good question. First of all, in The Prince, actually, I wasn't aware of in some way mimicking his style. I thought the style, even at the beginning of The Prince, was fairly ordinary. I do go inside the character's head 
a lot. I tell you what he or she is thinking, the character of the prince, for example, at the beginning of the book. But I will tell you that in the past, when I have been reading a lot of James and doing my own work, his style sort of infects me and I have to stop myself. But here, I was very conscious in The Prince of telling a story in our time. And I love a good story. And that's what interested me about my own book. But Henry James, early James, is much easier to read. Late James, you have to decide that you're just going to read this like poetry, meaning certain words and phrases will stand out buried in very long sentences and paragraphs, and you pick those out. Also, in Henry James, in The Golden Bowl, there is this element of mystery. You're looking for meaning in this. I really didn't have that in my novel, The Prince. What was pushing the novel forward was an illicit relationship between an impoverished prince, Italian prince, and his old girlfriend while he is married to a very wealthy woman. And what happens in this love affair? Because the woman he has an affair with eventually marries his father-in-law. Yep. So you have this awful, well, I won't call it a triangle, quadrangle. So in that sense, the novel is about what happens when these secrets come to the surface and how they come to the surface and how the family, the wealthy patriarch and his daughter solve this problem and what they know and don't know. One thing I borrowed from James was I borrowed the whole notion of gradual awareness and not wanting to admit what you see. As someone once said, love is about not knowing, unacknowledging. So I used that to write this novel. Yeah. Well, you know, I actually did reread The Golden Bull before this conversation. I spent two days rereading it and nearly lost my will to live, but I did reread it. Uh, and, and, Sorry, laugh. Yeah. And, and one criticism I have of The Golden Bull is that these characters, they talk about nothing other than the marriages of the other characters. And it's this incredibly annoying gossip fest particularly with the assign hymns who are just annoying as hell to me. I mean, just shut up. It's like I'm stuck <laughs> on vacation listening to these people gabbing. And with that terrible dialogue or those terrible sentences, they don't have anything else going on with their lives. But in your book, you've had Federico, who's the Amerigo of your book. Yeah, He's right. playing music in a band. He's smoking pot. You have Emily, yeah. the, the Maggie Verver of your book. She's right. talking about taking classes, signing up for Teach for America. There's a prenuptial agreement. Uh, there's some concern with the president speaking about North Korea. I have to thank you for making your book readable, <laughs> unlike Henry James, because it's actually realistic. Uh, the so-called mystery. Uh, and then, of course, you have, of course, the father-in-law, Henry, checking out <laughs> the, yes. Charlotte, the Charlotte character, Christina. It's far more plausible when it comes to human behavior, as far as I'm concerned. It seems to me that you're aware that Henry James was a bit one note when it came to the reality that people have lives other than gossiping. You know what I mean? Yes, I do, because rarely in Henry James do you encounter a character who actually has a job. Yeah. It's very rare. I know. And, and um, 
James was a precursor of what we call modernism. So a lot of this takes place within the consciousness of the characters. But there is that element. There's a muffled quality in his books. You do get a sense of these grand houses. But in my book, I actually sort of had fun in the prince creating these grand houses in more vivid terms. And thank you um, for that, because the Golden Bull is anything but fun, and I would not call it muscly <laughs> senses. I would call them, hey, you can say this in a third of the length, buddy, you know? <laughs> well, you know, Ed, you're not in the minority here. There yeah. are very, very literary people who have trouble with that book. In fact, William James Henry's brother... Yes, much better. the book. I... William James, I love. I have no problem with William James. Look, I have no problem. I love Thackeray. I love Dickens. I love Tolstoy. I love all of these great pre-modern novelists, but it's Henry James that just makes me want to asphyxiate something. I mean, (laughs) the the last time I reread The Ambassadors, I kid you not... I had a nightmare in which I was strangled by the sentences of James, and I woke up in a cold sweat. So, like, how how can you help someone like me who wants to like Henry James? And I do like the early Henry James, but I just can't. This guy is a drunk at a bar, except he's a little bit more highfalutin. He's rambling incessantly. For God's sakes, just shut the hell up, you know? You're making me laugh very hard, Ed. Um, first of all, so think about his class structure. This is relevant to my novel, The Prince. Yeah. Um, in his novels, as I said, nobody ever has a job. They always take place on estates or in grand houses or palazzos. They rarely take place in the United States. Scenes, there are scenes in the United States, but usually they move to Europe. He was writing about maybe the second generation of the robber baron class. The antecedents of those people were rough, tough people who built the railroads. And then they have offspring who become more educated. They begin to collect art, as does the father figure in my novel, The Prince. So there is that truth. And I had a background as a filmmaker, which made me more interested in scenes. Ah, I went to film school myself. Maybe you Uh, and I could find a common point. How does a film mind grasp the portentous length of Henry James' oppressive sentences? (laughs) (laughs) Right. You're, You're making me laugh as I discuss this. And I want to tell you you're not alone so maybe people will read my novel the prince to get a sense of what his novel's about because what i borrowed from james is essentially the structure the idea my character the wealthy father is a descendant of the robber barons but at this point he's gone to law school and he's very conscious of his wealth and he becomes a public interest lawyer and does very good things, although wealth is in the air he breathes. His daughter, who is one of the characters in my novel, she is, Emily is her name, she did go to a very good school. She is smart, but she, in that environment, has had to hide her intelligence to some extent. And so she's a certain kind of woman you find in that world. But this was part of my effort to give life to these people that perhaps is lacking in James, although I do love Henry James 
And I Oh yeah, I clearly. Think, it's very clear from reading your book that you are a Henry James nerd. And that's great. But <laughs> at the same time, you are also very honest about Henry James fallacies, I would say. Yes, I think I am. You have to understand in writing The Prince, I spent one year rereading the Golden Bull, taking a taking it apart. What? How many and, times did you reread it? Well, in this case, because I was looking at it with the idea of writing a novel, uh-huh. um, it was probably one reading, but, you know, I went back to certain chapters, back and forth. So ah, it wasn't okay. like I sat on the couch and read through Henry James. I was examining it, thinking about what each chapter in my own novel, The Prince, could be. Ah, um, okay. Thinking about who I could make these characters. There are certain elements in The Prince that are kind of a continuation of this, of James. For example, many wealthy descendants of the robber barons, think of the Rockefellers or the Vanderbilts, they collected art. They made art museums or started them. And that I put into my novel. We know in Henry James that the senior person is going to involve himself in art, but you don't see much of it. So I was interested in how this would happen in the new generation. In in regard to the Rockefeller family, which is a good analog, except my family is very, very private. I know immensely wealthy people who are very private about their wealth, but yeah. in the Rockefeller family, the newest generation or the generation that's in their 60s and 70s, they became doctors, environmentalists, they had to live with the weight of the original Rockefeller, who was not a very nice man. And so that interested me. And it was fun in some ways to create a world in the Prince. I borrowed the notion of a private island, a sort of primeval yes. place, yes, and which was fun. And I created a house for each of them. And I actually researched the decor that these houses might have had because they're a lot bigger than my house. Um, ah, so I, I'm getting a sense here that you actually did more research on the robber barons of the Gilded Age more so than looking to the Golden Bull itself. Is Would that be safe to say? Absolutely. Ah, uh, that, should... that would explain why your novel is readable and Henry James's The Golden Bull is not. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, for the prince, I should t- tell you um, that my husband is an historian, and he wrote Uh a biography of Andrew Carnegie. And from that and discussions with him, I learned a great deal about the rubber barons. And I actually... Ron Chernow's uh, House of Morgan is great, too. Yes. Oh, my. Yes. Very, very. And there have been biographies of Frick. Mm -hmm. And none of these guys were very nice. Um, The... (laughs) You know, well, you had they, you had to be a bit of a dick in order to hoard all that wealth, right? <laughs> not only that, but to gain the wealth. When you yeah. think of Frick and the strike, the Homewood strike, where you know he called the Pinkertons on these people. Yeah, you know, they some people died. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. As and Carnegie was a was a participant. I actually have met some descendants of the Carnegie family. They couldn't be more different from him. Oh, they They, they actually had a heart. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah, right. And uh, so, but it was fun to create this private island. I was sort of outraged that somebody could have a private island that big in the middle of 
Long Island Sound. And actually, I used research about a place called Gardner's Island, which is this huge place that belongs to the Gardner family, which I had visited. So in the middle of Long Island Sound, which is filled with boats and with some pollution, there is this primeval place with first growth trees with an old manor house and beautiful wildlife. And so this purity is analogous to the purity of my character, Emily, who's in this, in my novel, The Prince, in her realization of what's going on and in hers and her father's solution to this is forced to grow up and see the world, see reality and all its darkness and a lot of this novel, my novel and James, is about her growth, you know. And I should say that the solution to this problem, which I'd rather not give away, is almost monstrous. Yeah. Um, it's it's just only, I don't know how they came up with it, um, these two people. And I borrowed that from Henry James, from The Golden Bull. And in The Prince, I think I made it more vivid. Um, yeah, again. but... Yeah. But here's the thing, going back to the whole Henry James problem, like, right now I'm actually going through all of Edith Wharton, and I uh, love yes. her. I love yes. her. I have no Isn't such... She I mean, wonderful? She's amazing. House of Mirth, Age of Innocence, all those ghost stories. She depicts class far more intelligently and far more subtly and with greater nuance than... Henry James, and not only that, I kind of have to ding Henry James for taking 10 years to befriend her after Edith Wharton yes. saying, hey, Henry, I love you, and then she, he's yes. taking 10 years and doing that whole f- false modesty thing. So why not Edith Wharton? I mean, give, give me a reason why I should give Henry James another shot. You talk about the mystery and the ambiguity. I look at his sentences, and honestly, I, I see something that is completely on the nose. I don't see characters here who have the great vivacity of, say, Lily Bart from the House of Mirth or or any of these other great classics of that era, you know? Well, you know, I have to agree with you in some bizarre way. Uh (laughs) Aha! I I love Edith Wharton. Of course, they were friends. They became friends. He was kind of snotty about her first short story. And um, when (laughs) when they were both published by Lippincott, they, they became very close. She admired him so much. I know. Um, but I think you're, in some way you're right. With regard to the Golden Bull, the only way to see it is in itself a mystery that you have to go through these filaments of language and find the truth underneath it. And you have to have a taste for it. And I happen to like being surrounded by the miasma of Henry James. But (laughs) Warden is a great, great novelist. And she tells you a story in plain English that you can lose yourself in. And I think human beings love stories. They tell stories every day. And my primary goal as a novelist is to tell a good story. So uh, let's just say that Henry James is sort of a hobby of mine that not everyone shares. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. And and look, I want to cultivate this taste, Anisha, but I am having 
incredible difficulty with this late period, especially these last three novels, which are That's just, right. to me, Henry James is the most offensive mansplainer in all of American literature, or English literature, as he would like to call himself, as we know. But it's like, how does one grasp this taste? Am, am I just missing some DNA that will allow me to appreciate Henry James? I mean, come on, stop, stop for this guy for me. Help me out here. <laughs> you make me laugh. You know, I've learned as a novelist, and as a sort of literary person, one of the things I've discovered is how many of my literary friends don't like certain authors. Yeah. For example, I tend to not like a lot of contemporary novels which are kind of postmodern, fragmentary, and usually they are about a woman whose husband is betraying her or yeah. who doesn't like her children. You know, in other words... I think we can all be forgiven for not liking. These novels are very, very successful right now. And I think we all can be forgiven. As I discuss books with my friends and discover there are certain authors that they just can't abide, and they themselves are very talented, I've learned to forgive myself when I find an author that I don't like. And I suggest... You forgive yourself and and leave him alone and read Edith Wharton. <laughs> but but you know you could make the same complaint about Henry James when Ruth Prayer Juvala adapted the Golden Bull for that Merchant Ivory film. She made Charlotte a lot more manipulative, and she was not so manipulative in the James text. It's almost as if James himself didn't spell out his character motivations, as I've been suggesting during the course of this conversations and. In Conjuring Christina, from the bones of Charlotte, did you feel more pressured to adhere more to James's rather limited idea of human beings? Or or, or well, am I just missing something here? I mean, if the Merchant Ivory adaptation, what is long considered to be the gold standard, feels the need to embellish, I think that says a lot about Henry James's weaknesses, you know? Well, I think Ruth Jabala couldn't have written a film script totally from the Golden Bull. She had to do what she did. I happen to love the movie. Yeah, it's Um, a good movie. And in my case, in The Prince, with the character of Christina, who is the Charlotte of the Golden Bull, the woman, the gorgeous woman who comes in and wrecks the marriage or tries to. I, first of all, I try to take a Shakespearean view of character, which is that everyone is a mixture of good and evil. Everyone, perhaps Hitler. um, Or Putin. (laughs) Or Putin. Oh, my God. Yes, exactly. Uh, To bring this to to 2022. (laughs) God. Yeah. And, you know, even Hitler was a vegetarian and liked children as long as they were blonde. But the point is, I wanted to understand her. And, you know, the process of understanding as a novelist, it, it emerges from a place that it is difficult to define. It emerges from your sense of the world. So here is this beautiful woman. I, very importantly, didn't want to make her evil. She is the subject in the prince of her passion for this impoverished prince. She has part of her family in Rome. Her mother, I decided, was a sort of hippie who lived yeah. in Rome and, you know, was neglectful of her. And even that mother, I sort of made sad in a way. You know, she's not a bad person so much as 
incompetent, but but sad, pathetic yeah. in some way. So what was up? By the way, what was what was up with the vintage clothing angle you had going on? That came up about two or three times, as I remember. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Are, are, are all, all rich people are vintage clothing people? I mean, where did this come from? <laughs> well, first of all, in my novel, in The Prince, as in The Golden Bull, she's not rich. And it was interesting to me. Oh, yeah. I've Sorry. Been, I've, I've been in Rome a lot. I'm not an expert on Rome, but I have been there. And it's interesting to see how, let's put it this way, American culture is has penetrated Rome. Rome, to me, is not the same Rome that I was in 20 years ago. So that, you know, there are vintage stores. They're chic, they're cool vintage stores, and which is not something, you, when you think of Rome, you think of a city that sells maybe exquisite china or antiques. And here, I, I gave her a kind of modern moment in an effort to make her a character of this or the most recent century Uh, so that I don't think I sat there and seriously contemplated this it just slipped in there what was she doing she didn't have a lot of money she was at one point trying to get her degree how do people support themselves well you know we see in New York waiters who are really actors and they're in school for a PhD in something because they don't have a grant so that sort of slipped in. Sometimes I will tell you, when I write a novel, I do write little biographies of each character uh-huh. to help me. Yeah. Yes, and I don't always use that uh, material that I've found or that I write, but it helps me shape it. And then in terms of scenes, um, you spoke of research, the city where... Christina and Federico go for their assignation. That is something I took from a place called Hudson, New York, which yes. is a, a very interesting city, and I know that very I've well. I've been so. there, yeah. And in fact, I was going to ask you why you didn't go with the original London setting of the Golden Bowl and transplanted everything to New York. Well, that's interesting because I grew up in England, but I really? don't. Yes, and I don't remember. I don't know London enough anymore. Plus, well, you kind of visited, I suppose, but I guess you felt you felt more comfortable on home turf. Is that what the whole deal was? Well, London has changed so drastically from the London I knew growing up there, which had a very homogeneous language, a very rigid class system. Yes. Um, Uh, how How long were you in London, out of curiosity? Well, the first 13 years of my life. Oh, okay, okay. And I was raised by an English woman. And my father was American. And so now I go back there, and the language is, the sentences are more brief. They're, they're partial sentences. There are no more sort of Victorian echoes in the language, you know, full sentences. There are many, many foreign words, American yeah. slang, East Asian Indian words from all over, from from the colonies, yeah. It's just so the world is not everything that I loved about London, such as, say, Fortnum and Mason, where I would go to have tea when I was mm-hmm. a kid, mm-hmm. is now like Disneyland. So the yeah. London that I knew was not theirs. And may I add, London is filled, the rich of London are often Arabs. You go through London and you see 
women in burqa, it's really very different. You don't glimpse the old aristocracy. By the way, what has happened in the UK with this old aristocracy is not unlike what's happened in Italy. Yeah. These in these grand houses, they they rent out rooms, they make money with tours. This has happened in a lot of European countries as the money has dried up. So it's just not the same world that James inhabited. Um, and James himself, you know, went from estate to estate. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you think that, uh, I mean, I visited London. I finally got a chance to visit London a few years ago. You could probably guess I, I got into a lot of trouble because I tend to be a pretty direct and honest guy. And yes. uh, the levels and layers of passive aggression there are just off the charts. No one can be direct. Like, for example, when someone spills a drink in a bar, the entire bar goes silent. It's fascinating. <laughs> you know, and then, of course, there's like this ceremonial ritualistic thing where the person who has spilled the drink has to buy the drink whereas here in america it's like hey here you go no problem here's another beer i'm wondering if that passive aggressive mentality is was simply incompatible with your vision or maybe i'm i'm maybe well, i'm projecting but, here i don't know <laughs> well you know henry james was he spent his life in europe yeah and a lot he had a house in sussex yes and you're quite right I don't know enough about contemporary London. Again, I have been there, but not long enough to absorb that. I will tell you that I think there's a point you're making that's quite true. There's a tendency towards what we might call politeness and yeah. indirection that does still exist. And I was not going to have that in my novel, The Prince, because it takes place in New York City and on this private island, that kind of locution and indirectness, it is present in my novel, in The Prince, but it's more what the characters don't want to see, what's happening under their very eyes, and the fact that they don't really confront each other with words such as, you're having an affair with my yeah. best friend, you're having an affair with my mother-in-law, which is what happens. So... There is this buried realization, but the language is pretty ordinary English. It's not the language that you and I would, would think of as, well, British in the 1950s, and even to some extent the manners that we have now, except for this refusal to articulate these secrets and in that way. But I'm not sure that that wouldn't be the case in a lot of families. One of the things that fascinated me about The Golden Bowl and about my novel in writing it, in The Prince, is all families, most families, have a secret. You know, an uncle who was once in jail or something. And what happens in these families? Do they not discuss it? Do they overlook it? Or do they discuss it very vaguely? I was fascinated by this, you know, how families deal with the secrets. There are very, very few families that don't have a secret. And so I was very interested in the prince in looking at what happens. And I think that's a universal thing. So that would explain some of the things I took from James. You know, his fiction is really about all of the fiction. Most of it has a secret. 
you could say it's about a secret. And I have some theories about why that is, um, if you care to hear about them. Sure. But, At the same time, I'm going to offer some pushback and suggest that the yes. secrets in a Henry James novel are like the secrets that were in Lost, the TV show, where you're watching this show constantly. You realize, oh, they're bullshitting the entire time. They really don't have no idea what they're doing. I got that sense, certainly, yet again, rereading The Golden Bowl, which I think is my third go around, my third attempt. And yes. again, what's the great secret here? I mean, you know what I mean? Yes. Well, there's always a secret in Henry James, and there's a secret in my novel, The Prince. Um, but his very style is, it, it's like a veil drawn over the secret. In The Prince, the veil is more a willed refusal to acknowledge what's happening in front of your eyes, so that the language in Henry James is the veil. And I think his secrecy, as I said, might have a reason. And I don't know if you want me to get into that. But, yeah, but um, if you like, feel, feel free. I mean, look, look, I will take any form of information to attempt. Attempt. <laughs> I'm a very stubborn fellow. Anyone who has read The Golden Bowl three times is got to be a little bit insane, which would include myself, and I'm presumably well, you, you as well. <laughs> Well, I think I certainly have the insanity. I share your insanity to some extent. Uh, but, but, but it's not a willing insanity. It's I want to confront this aversion that I feel so deeply. I mean, there are people I know who have ranked the Golden Bowl as one of the five worst novels of all time. And it's not like they haven't read Miss Macintosh, My Darling, or something, right? You know? <laughs> right. But you have, look, you're on the same page as his brother, William, yeah. and of Virginia Woolf. He, yes. he, he was, she didn't like it either. She couldn't understand why he was so popular. Now, Ed, the only advice I could give you is leave it alone and enjoy Edith Wharton. In other words, it's... It's a hopeless attempt, this is what you're saying. Yeah, don't... don't um, you should not chastise yourself for this because, again, I'm always surprised when I talk to my literary friends, my fellow writers, how... They often don't like books that are, you know, extremely well-regarded by critics. Yeah. It's been a sort of relief to me because I, it, it has given me permission to put a lot of contemporary fiction, especially, just put it down. Don't try. Maybe the critics are saying this is marvelous. I've had this experience with Nobel Prize winning novelists. Yeah. Um, and been embarrassed initially, but now I'm going to to um, just say, okay, you know, life is too short. Read what you want to read. Uh, don't read a book that you don't like. I want to understand why people like it. I hate Jonathan Franzen. I completely hate his fiction. Yes. But I continue well, to read it. On, and it's actually, weirdly enough, there's a lot of overlap between Henry James and Jonathan Franzen. They both overwrite their sentences. You know? I think so. Yeah, well, oh, yes. Oh, God. You know, and the other problem I have, and this is the common theme with, like, James and Franzen, is, like, they claim that they know everything, but I get the sense that they really don't, because you can actually sort of read between the lines, oh, they're just blowing smoke. They really have no idea what they're talking about. And maybe this is a particular temperament I have, where I am very much into 
realistic human behavior or quirky human behavior. I'm not averse to long sentences. I'm not averse to formality. I we've been talking about Edith Wharton, right? But you know, but for, for for whatever reason, these two guys, it's what's known as a hate read. I they fill me with a form of rage that I don't want to feel, and yet I still read them out of a complete stubborn tenacity. <laughs> yes. Well, I have to say, I don't think Henry James stylistically has much in common with Jonathan Franzen, but I don't particularly care for Franzen's books either, but mm -hmm. I don't see this veil drawn over them the way you do with Henry James. Um, mm -hmm. I see them. I fault them for other reasons. My advice is give it up and read Edith Wharton. I, the problem I have, uh, Denisha, is that I am doing this modern library project. I've been working on this for years where I am reading the top 100 books of the 20th century issued in 1998. And the dreaded three titles of Henry James are on the list eventually, so it's not as if I can just pretend that uh, Henry James doesn't exist. This is coming up in a couple of years when I finally get to those three novels, which include The Golden Bull, but that's yeah. probably why I make several attempts to kind of like, okay, maybe this is the one time I can appreciate it, but uh, sorry. Ed, you're doing a modern library project. Does that mean you're trying to read your way through the modern library, or are you doing... An essay on it or a book? I'm doing an you... essay. I have done an essay on each one. I am up to Lawrence Durrell's The Alexandria Quartet, which I read for the first time, and I loved that. Oh, my yeah. God. It was, it was. I love it. Clea is not the best, but the other three are amazing, beautiful. But going back to Henry James in your book, I actually wanted to point out one thing I noticed. The use of the word connection in Henry James with the X. It's like, hello, I'm Henry James. I'm going to drop connection to show what an Anglophile <laughs> I am. And it's just like yes. he, he uses connection for the sake of using connection. And I was reading your book thinking, oh, I wonder how Tanisha is going to use connection. And I noticed only two uses of connection in your book. <laughs> and in fact, you have a character say there's no fucking connection at one point. And I was like, ah, ah, here she knows. She understands <laughs> that Henry James overused connection. And I was wondering, was that a conscious choice on your part? Or? No, no, it would never be. Uh -huh. um, actually, I only wanted to tell in the prince a good story in language that would appeal to readers. Yeah. Um, I actually didn't consciously try not to write like James. The style I wrote it in, I, you know, again, I think it comes out of journalism. Ah. You, you want to be clear. You want it, the reader to continue to read. And in the prints, as I once, as I said earlier, on, there have been times when I've been reading a lot of James and doing my own work, and his style has infected me. But I, this time, as a result of that, I decided in the prints, I'm just not going to try. I'm just going to write a story that people enjoy, that people want to continue reading. And so I didn't need to try to write like James, having tried. <laughs> So yeah. that's what I did in the prints, yeah. Have you ever maxed out on Henry James? I'm curious. Is there like an upper limit of like, no, I can't take any more Henry James in my effort to try to understand? <laughs> well, you I, know, it might be that I would, if I went back and reread all his work, mm -hmm. I might feel the same as you. In the past, he's been important to me. Um, I'm not sure if I could describe why, but the ingenious way he brings out the truth in his characters' lives. But there are a number of writers that I have 
you know, I'm not sure how I'd feel. I happen to know Finnegan's Wake and Ulysses. And oh, I'm a big I'm Joyce not, nerd, yeah. So <laughs> well, there you are. And I probably, I'm not sure how I would feel. It's been quite a few years since I've yeah. read either. So you know, I don't know. I know my belief. My belief in contemporary fiction is it's got to be a story. It's got to be clear. And this is just the way I believe the prince should be. I wouldn't ever try to obfuscate it or bury it in a veil of of secrecy like Henry James does. I wouldn't have tried in The Prince, no. And yet you have an aversion to postmodernism, which is all about secrecy and little games. And Finnegan's Wake is the ultimate game that you have to play. It took me five years to read that thing, by the way, but I did get through it. <laughs> and several I'm very times. impressed. Well, I you mean, are... it's... But the thing is, is like there is a reason because it's enjoyable. I, you it you is. want you want to know all of the secrets, and then you finally the only way you finish it is realizing I will never know all the solutions, and then there you, you just are. and then you're able to appreciate it. But like the prose itself is is phenomenal and and, and hilarious and funny and beautiful, and it like Very like funny. like that's a dense book. Frankly, it's the densest book I would say of all yes. literature, uh, yes. and yet I never had any real problems getting back on the track whereas with Henry James I do you know like right but you know what Finnegan's Wake has that Henry James does not have is Finnegan's Wake as you point out is funny it's yeah. also you know lots of slang Irish slang yeah. even though there are Scandinavian words in it that you can't possibly unless you want to go to a dictionary but it's funny it's naughty it's you know, it's ironic. It's all those things that keep you going. Yeah. And it's a bit like a puzzle. But here's what I suggest to people who will, will read Finnegan's Wake. In the same way you might read Henry James, which is don't try to follow a, a line through it. You know, just read it as poetry. Accept those words that resonate with you that are fun but don't try, don't labor over it. Um, you'll go nuts if you do it with Finnegan's well, but Wake. It's not, even, it's not even laboring in James's case. It's like, he looked at her. He looked at her left. He looked at her right. I mean, and this goes on for an entire goddamn page. That's right. <laughs> at a certain point, it's not so much poetry. It's like, can we call an editor for this guy because he's in his transcription period and he's transcribing. <laughs> I mean, it literally is mansplaining. He is dictating this novel, which explains... That's right. Why it's just so, as far as I'm concerned, it's like having to listen for three hours to some CEO who, who really doesn't have much to say. <laughs> well, there are people who think he had carpal tunnel syndrome. Yeah, But yeah. I, I do have a theory about this. It's very strange, but it has been implied or described in another way by scholars. There is this idea that Henry James might have been a gay man. Yes. And he may have never acted on his feelings, yes. but if you read his letters, they are extremely passionate towards certain men, and yes. they, you know, in some ways, they may follow Victorian conventions where you wrote passionate letters to people, even your friends, but okay, my theory is that in his early days, he may have not been able to accept this if it's true as he evolved and by the way spent much more time with other gay men yes 
many of his friends were gay, he perhaps began to acknowledge his attraction and perhaps passion for other men. One way you can read Henry James is, like Proust, if you make the female characters, the male character, the male, into female characters. As he was writing The Golden Bull, he had a friendship with yet another of his bachelor friends, Count Primolo, upon whom he based Federico. Again, that's man to man. But what if the longing he he writes about, the passion buried there, is really an expression of his feelings for other men? As Proust did, Albertine, you know, he he gave yeah. them names even that were resonant and. I wonder if that is a reason that his style evolved and to become more complex to enable him to write about longing and love, same-sex longing and love, to which in that time of Oscar Wilde, he could never have written a, a gay novel. It would have been impossible. And I'm not sure I'm right, by the way. I'm not sure. But... It's something that's crossed my mind. I, I mean, look, I'm looking for any angle to James. If I want to play the gay subtext card, I could read Chip Delaney. I could read Ed White. I could read James right. Baldwin. I could read any number of gay writers who get to the goddamn point. <laughs> You're <laughs> you right, know? but they they come much later. Yeah, I know. They come I know. It's, much it's, later. It's, I, it's not fair but to some degree. And you, but... you know, he was... At this point, surrounded by the Oscar Wilde trial yeah. oh, and yeah. scandals, and it was so awful. Now, again, I don't want to impose this idea. It's merely conjecture. I just don't know. But sometimes I've wondered the longing here, the passions. Could they be same sex that he felt afraid or he just afraid wouldn't be the right word? You just didn't do it. It's a thought. You know, this ties into something I observed in The Golden Bull, which is, I suppose this is why I kind of make the connection to Franzen, is that his women, especially in The Golden Bull, they're either schemers, victims, or doormats. So it's almost yes. as if he doesn't understand women. And I know in your book, in The Prince, there's that woman's head that we see in the shop next to the vase, right? Yes. And it's almost as if you're almost acknowledging that problem with James. And maybe that may also be another reason why James rubs me the wrong way. Maybe in my case, any novel is only as good as its women. These women just, I mean, come on. Even for the time period. Like, I don't get that with Lily Bard at all, but I definitely get that with Maggie Verver, this, you're yes. basically sort of like this doormat, you know? Yeah, well, also, she does grow, you know, at That's the end. She, but she becomes, as I said, what she does is monstrous and cunning. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the people have said this is about her maturity. But you're right, the girls, the women are, the younger women are empty characters in many ways. The older women are more powerful. For example, in The Golden Bowl, Mrs. Assingham, yeah. she's, she's intrusive, she's a gossip. Uh, she's she annoying a, as hell, I'm telling yeah, you that. <laughs> yeah, whereas, you know, I like to think in my novel, I gave Emily a life, even though she is of that class and at the beginning of the novel, very, very innocent and yeah. sweet. So I'm very aware of that. And this had to be her growth in The Prince. Mm -hmm. uh, into maturity in some way. 
a growth that has a terrible price on her husband and, in fact, you could say on herself, the decisions she makes. Um, but you're right, his characterization. He spent his life amongst women who were middle-aged or older who were, except for his cousin who, who died, he wasn't a man who had lots of young women friends. You know, Edith Wharton was one of his closest friends, and she, by the way, her lover, Morton Fullerton, was yeah. bisexual. Yep. And so she was not pretty. She had a kind of slightly masculine demeanor, and she would fit his likes. And she had a lot of money, too, which... I feel, was an attraction for him, although he was wealthy. He had money, but he wasn't terribly, terribly rich, like Wharton. So there is that there. The women are pushed around. They're treated badly. The wings of the dove, she's frail, she's sweet. So I think you've got a point there. And I tried in The Prince to give these women a life, give them a background, a personhood that the reader could relate to. Sure, sure. You know, it's funny that we're talking about this because maybe Me Too has a weird effect upon the impact of Henry James now. Because if you remember about, was it 10, 12 years ago, we had the novels by David Lodge and Coim Tobin, uh, yes. where suddenly like, there were all these books about Henry James, and then right. Henry James was having a moment, and then all of a sudden that moment crested it disappeared completely and yes. like until your book came along which it was sort of a surprise like oh someone's stumping for henry james in 2022 that's a bold move well <laughs> you know? thank you i mean it's like no one's doing that anymore i mean what do you think is the cause of that movement that happened about 15 years ago and yes. why it's not happening now well here's what i think first of all the post-war novelists bellow the rest of them they're women, they're female characters. They never have jobs. Yeah, <laughs> they, yeah, they, yeah. Oh, there's yeah. one Bellow novel where she's a mathematician, but you wouldn't know it, given her a label. You don't really feel her job because jobs certainly preoccupy people, women and men. So I wanted once to write something about this, women without jobs. And actually, a lot of those post-war novelists, I find... I don't really like anymore Norman Mailer and, you know, because of... Mailer, uh, Mailer is a better nonfiction guy. He's problematic, but not even Augie yeah. March, for God's sakes. That's a that's a masterpiece, you know? Well, I'm a little bit cautious about saying that now because my... as I've You know, as I've, as I've matured myself, the women... I used to think, oh... Oh, because of the woman, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking in terms of the language, and that's the thing. It's like you have to look yeah. at those older 20th century novelists, especially the men, and you have to, like, say, okay, well, not exactly the best characters. But I mean, like, even with Lawrence Durrell, you could make a lot of... Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of problems to some degree for a lot of the women in there. Like, all of the women are victimized or left in yeah. the dust, but... I don't care because the language is so beautiful. I don't even well, care about Durrell's life, really. I, I, I mean, no. yeah, he was a, you, he was a, he was a right. monster, you know. But if a book is great, if it captures some essence of the human condition, then 
uh, I'm willing to overlook more of the regressive outlook of the time, you know? Well, you know, this is not really, in my case, a political thing. Yeah, um, yeah. I feel, I just can't, I'm sort of disgusted uh-huh. with some of the women he they portray. Oh, but, yeah. rather, with their portrayals. But what you're talking about, I think, and the change in the women, thinking of George Eliot, actually, yeah. um, in her, you know, trying to show Dorothea in Middlemarch as a woman yes. struggling to find meaning. What has happened, I think, certainly before the the last 15 years, but it's come to, women have come to a certain maturity. Yes. It's not just the feminist movement. It's that we had to have jobs because the economy would no longer support husbands who make yes. all the money and the women do nothing but stay at home. As we began to have jobs, these jobs... Um, preoccupied us. They helped shape our identities. And thus, you could no longer write women characters who were just, you know, taking care of the house and maybe having affairs. But now there is a universe of women who are not only having jobs, but also, in my case, writing. When I started writing, I couldn't find many women models, except maybe George Eliot, because most of the older women novelists that I admired didn't have children, and yeah. I have children. And so I thought, okay, I can't have children and be a writer. Now, I think I'm maybe the first generation of female writers who had children and were, you know, had and wrote. And uh, now I notice women writers who are younger than me have have children without any pause they that so it, i think you're right there's an evolution in the portrayal of women in these novels and yeah. uh yeah it's very smart and well, I mean, even I, even even Iris Murdoch, and I love Iris Murdoch. She's one of my favorites. There aren't that many children in her novels. It's really, right. uh, uh, despite the fact that those women are amazing, and that's the problem. Yeah. So, so these women that we know now are probably working, but they also are dealing with the issues of domestic life versus their commitment to work. So the work permeates their lives, their consciousness. At the same time, they're struggling, what is a mother? And you see this in a lot of contemporary fiction. And you don't see it, of course, in Wolf or in Eliot. And again, in Eliot, I don't think any of these women have a job. Dorothea in Middlemarch wants to have meaning very much. I believe that, if I remember correctly, she struggles to get involved in a hospital or with the medical profession. Yes. But she doesn't really have a job. Yeah. And that's my theory. And some of the feminist movement, I think, came out of the fact that we were seeing women with jobs and they were having an enormous struggle. They had to have jobs, but they were struggling for recognition in these jobs with dealing with male bosses, all these struggles, and I think they, in some part, were responsible, these issues were responsible for the feminist movement. And there you are, in literature, you see the result of it, too. And, you know, I think that that's 
part of what happened. Well, my goodness, we've been chatting quite a long while. <laughs> yes, Denisha, we this have. was this was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I think I have a couple of more inroads into Henry James, and uh, <laughs> I certainly enjoyed reading your novel. I, I will keep you posted uh, when I get to Henry James again, and uh, maybe uh, maybe we can uh, you can give me some more pointers. But thank you very well, much. Thank you, Ed. You've been listening to My Henry James Problem, the 553rd installment of The Bat Segundo Show, which was written, produced, edited, and presented by yours truly, Edward Champion. My thanks to Susan Manuki and Denisha Smith for their time and patience with a Henry James hater. And if you enjoyed listening to this program, consider checking out my audio drama at grayareapod.com or going back into the Batsegundo archives to listen to the 552 previous installments of something I used to do on a regular basis and that I now do once every three or four years. You can also go to edrance.com and follow along as I spend the next several years reading through the Modern Library Top 100, which, as you may have gathered, includes Henry James. Thank you so much for listening.